Let's jump into Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. We're going to be looking at this morning. And so what we are doing is we're continuing in our series where we're working through some of the great prayers of the Old Testament. Um, Before I say anything this morning, I want to just reiterate how encouraging and challenging um, and just how phenomenal Jim's sermon was from last Sunday. Um, If you missed that, you very much need to go back and listen to it. We were reminded that we are a people grasping at the promises of God through our own means. Like That's our struggle. While ignoring the one in whose presence there is fullness of joy and eternal pleasures. From Adam to Jacob, and as we'll see this morning, to the entirety of God's chosen nation, one of humanity's primary struggles is that we are so often caught looking for love in all the wrong places. Or as one hymn writer puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus, the one who embodied everything that, w- that humanity was meant to be, he refrained from grasping by laying down his life on our behalf. And that's the redemptive story of our Bible. The good news of King Jesus is that, that self-sacrificial response to the sinfulness of this world. And one of the ways that we get to participate in that story is by entrusting ourselves to the king and pleading with him in prayer to remain faithful to his promises, which is exactly what we're about to see unfold in Exodus 33. So a little bit of context as always. Um, We're going to zoom out because that's really the best way to understand a passage that we're going to be looking at. We're in the book of Exodus, which captures the story of God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now, at this point of the story, Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai, which means that they have already experienced God's salvation through the parting of the Red Sea and his provision and sustenance by being fed bread from heaven, quail, and water from a rock. Now, not to mention all of the miraculous events that they witnessed through the ten plagues that God put Pharaoh and the people of Israel, um, of Egypt through, excuse me. So in other words, Israel isn't lacking in their experiential relationship with God. They're not lacking in that area. They've seen the hand of God at work. Like I said, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, which means that the events we're about to talk through are only about two months after the parting of the Red Seas. And so God's miracles would have been on the forefront of their mind. You don't forget things like that, right? I still remember the 1994 New York Rangers parade. As though, I was, as though I'm sitting there and seeing the ticker tape fall on my face. There's no way they would have forgotten what happened just two months prior. So they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain with God, receiving the law. And while he's up there, the people start to grow restless. Similar to me, growing restless that the Rangers have still not won another cup. Since this is not going to be a sermon about the New York Rangers. We're, going to, we're just going to, we're going to put that to bed. No more hockey talk for the rest of the morning. In fact, it says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, 
get up, make us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses, like right even there, as for this Moses, like dude, that's the guy who brought you, brought you out of slavery. As for this guy Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Forget him. We, we have other things that we're a little bit focused on now. Right? It's as if they had forgotten everything that God had done for them. And so instead of resting in the salvation of Yahweh, trusting in his provision, remembering his promises, they take matters into their own hands. Remember the story of Jacob from just last week. We are a people grasping at the promises of God <coughs> through our own means. And so the people, with the help of Aaron the priest, they fashion for themselves a golden calf. And they cry out, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron then builds an altar and they worship the calf. Right? Like, think about this, this, this scenario just for a second, right? It's two months after they had been rescued from slavery. Moses is gone, you know, it couldn't have been that long, right? Because we're only about two months removed from the event that, that, that they're all, you know, still sort of celebrating. And they very quickly just lose sight of who this God is. And so they build, they, they, they construct, they fashion this golden calf, and they point to the golden calf and says, that's the God. That thing right there, that is the thing that brought us out of Egypt. And so this obviously angers God. And he decides that he no longer wants anything to do with Israel. Right, he's done. He's washing his hands. He wants to start over with just Moses, but Moses pleads with God to relent. And he does so in Exodus 32, 11 through 13, by reminding God of the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God relents. He spares his people. The prayer worked. Now, there are all sorts of ancient Near Eastern backdrops that we can talk about, but that's not our purpose this morning. The point I want to make is that in this story, we see two responses. One coming from the people when they wrongly believed that Moses and his God had abandoned them. And two, from Moses when he hears that God might actually be planning on abandoning them. And so the people respond by taking matters into their own hands, by grasping at the promises of God through their own means, while Moses, on the other hand, he clings to both God and his promises, and he pleads with him to remember. Now, there's a word in here for all of us, because at every major and minor crossroad of our lives, we are confronted with those same two options. Do we grasp at the blessing by our own means, or do we trust in the grace and provision of God, which is what we saw last week in the story of Jacob? Now, the story continues. After God relents, he commands Moses to continue the journey. Right? And so right now, we'd be reading through this. We're like, all right, this is good. This is, all right, cool. Things are back on track. We're good. We're going in the right direction. He says, enter into the land um, that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that is flowing with milk and honey. He then tells them that an angel would go before them. But then God says in chapter 33, verse 3, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way because you are stiff-necked people. Now, upon hearing this, the people mourned. The same people 
who just days before were worshiping a golden calf, after being confronted with their sin, after seeing firsthand the consequences of their sin as those who were responsible for the golden calf were destroyed, they were able to now start remembering that it was God, Yahweh, who delivered them from Egypt. And it was also God who showed them mercy by not wiping them out completely. They wanted this God in their life. They wanted this God in their life. This is a devastating moment in the story of the Exodus. The promised land without God is not at all what they were hoping for. In fact, the promised land without God is the very thing that started this whole mess from the beginning. It's the story that stretches back to Adam and Eve in the garden and one that we still struggle with today. Like That's the story of Genesis 3. God takes Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden, in his presence, right? Because that's what the garden was. It was this cosmic temple where the presence of God dwelt. And so they're there, they're with God. This is a, this is a promised land story, but what do they do instead? They grasp at the promises of God by neglecting the presence of God and saying, we want the blessing, but we don't want you. That's what happened in that story. And now... God makes this promise. He promises this land and that he will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they will be his people. And and they're like, okay, God wants to be back in our presence. Now he's like, you know what? I don't think I want to be with you anymore. It's like that breakup that we all went through back in like middle school and high school. It's like, it's not you, it's me. You know, like that's kind of what like the feeling is, only like multiply that exponentially. And so Moses meets with God. Because Moses doesn't like this either. And this is where we get to our passage. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 33. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 23 this morning. It's also in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. So it starts like this, verses 12 through 13. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And so just first glance, we can tell Moses is not satisfied with the situation at hand. Yeah, sure, God spared Israel. But along with the people, he too is mourning. Why? Because the promised land without God is no promised land at all. Right? The promised land without God is no promised land at all. He reminds God, you told me to bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, you want me to take these people into the land, but who's supposed to go with us? Like, yeah, I know you mentioned an angel. That's cool. But that's not the deal. That's not what we agreed upon. That's not what you told me some 40 plus years ago when we met at the burning bush. He then says, you have said, you know me by name, that I have found favor in your sight. Well, prove it. If you really know me by name, if I have really found favor in your sight, then show me your ways that I might know you, that I might continue to find favor in your sight. What's going on here? Moses is pleading with God, and he's reminding him of his promises. Like, right now, this is, this is personal for Moses. Moses doesn't want the blessings of God 
if it means he has to give up his relationship with God. Right? It's like the little kid on Christmas morning surrounded by everything he can possibly want, but his parents are nowhere to be found. He don't want that. He doesn't want that. It says that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. See, see, Moses, like I said before, he's been walking with God for a long time now, over 40 years. And he's not willing to give that up. And then look what it says. It says, consider too that this nation is your people. Right? This isn't just some random group of people you're abandoning God. These are your people, the, one, the ones that you made promises to. See, Moses is pulling out all the stops here. That's how desperate he is to not be cut off from the relational presence of God. He doesn't just want the stuff. He wants the presence of God. He wants the presence of God. This is the point of the sermon, just so you know. This is what we're going to be talking about for the next 20 or so minutes. Are we satisfied with simply the blessings of God, or, or do we understand that the point of the entire program is that God would be with us? Like, that's the wonder of the gospel, Redeemer. That's the incredible part. Like, we were just singing, you're a good, good father. That's the beauty. That's the beauty, that we are adopted into a family of God. Man, that is good news. That is good news. Let's keep going. In verse 14, we learn that God answers Moses' prayer. What does he say? He says, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now there are a ton of questions that we can get into about God's sovereignty, about whether or not God changes his mind, do our prayers move the hand of God. Truth be told, the Bible has a way of holding these things in tension. God is sovereign, and he commands us to pray. And it seems, at least according to passages like this, that prayer does change things. And, and even the New Testament says that we have not because we ask not. All of these are interesting theological roads to travel down, but that's not the point of the sermon, nor do I believe it's the point of this passage. In fact, when we wrestle with questions like that, I think the best answer is kind of to just say like, I trust you, God. I don't know. But you tell me to pray, and you tell me you're sovereign, so I'm going to do both, right? We can, we can get nuts about this stuff. We can. And, and they're fun conversations to have. And, and they stretch our minds. But, but if we allow them to, to kind of overtake us, then we're just trying to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? And, and that's like, that doesn't matter, ultimately. It doesn't matter. And it's like, it's like 37. What I believe is the more important point for us to walk away with is the heart that Moses has for God. He seems to get it. God is the point. God's the point. The presence of God is the point. The text continues. As Moses wants to make sure that his God is going with him, right? Like he answers the prayer. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know what? I'm in. I'm in, Moses. And he says this in verse 15 through 16. 
If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Right? This part of the prayer, it almost sounds like, like Moses is giving God an ultimatum. Like, if you don't go, we don't go. Right? If you don't go, we don't go. Now, God just said, I'm going to go. But Moses is like, I, I got to be sure. I got to be sure. I'm not taking one more step unless I'm sure. Again, we're seeing the heart of Moses. He wants God to be with him. Now, like I said, God has already said he'd go with him. But Moses is clinging to God. He's like, no, no, no. Uh-uh. Right? Similar last week, right? Jim was talking about this. Like, like, like Jacob was unwilling to let go. Right? All through the night. And God's like, all right, we're good. You know, it's like kind of like when you're wrestling with like, like your little boy and you're like, okay, like we're done wrestling. Like it's like, like you hurt my leg, you hurt my back. It's like, I'm, I don't want to wrestle with you anymore. Um, but they just, they cling to you. Like that's, that's what's kind of happening here. That's like, Moses is like, I got to be sure. I have to be sure. Now verse 16 seems to indicate that there's more going on here. See, not only... Does Moses want the relational presence of God to be with him? But he also wants the world to know that he and the people of Israel belong to God. He wants the world to know. Now, this almost sounds self-serving. And some of it might be. It very well could be. I mean, Moses is not Jesus. He very well could. There could be a sinful flair in the midst of this prayer. We don't know. But that's, again, that's not the point of the sermon. But there's also which again, I think is more important, this desire in Moses that the name of Yahweh is vindicated. Again, we have to remember that Moses has been walking with God for over 40 years. All right, maybe he's wondering, like, did I make a mistake? He's wondering if all that he went through ends up here, what sort of God was he serving to begin with? Right? It's the same scenario that came, back, came up just a chapter prior in, in chapter 32 when God was ready to destroy the people for worshiping the golden calf. And Moses says to God, O oh Lord, <coughs> why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. God's reputation is on the line here. That's what's going through Moses' head. And in a sense, so is Moses' reputation. If God abandons them now, then all the promises, all the plagues against Egypt, everything from Abraham to this moment has been the work of an impulsive and capricious God, no different from the gods of Egypt. Moses wants to make sure that the God he serves is, in fact, the promise-keeping God he's grown to love over these last 40 years. And I think there's a lot we can resonate with when it comes to the way Moses approaches God. Now, for some of us, this exchange might make us uncomfortable, right? Who does Moses think he is? God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. Now, while there's truth in that statement, 
it misses the relational depth that has been cultivated between God and Moses over the course of 40 years. Moses is coming to God as one who has spent the time getting to know him. He knows the character. He knows his story. And he trusts both of those realities. And that's what he's basing his prayers on, the character and the story of God. Moses serves a God who loves his people and keeps his promises. And that's what he is reminding him of. See, a significant part in cultivating a life with God, in deepening our prayer lives, is getting to know the God to whom we're praying. It's getting to know the God to whom we're praying. Moses is banking everything on the character and story that he's been learning about for over 40 years. For over 40 years. What I'm suggesting to us is that the story we get to walk in that we get to rest all of our prayers upon, it has everything Moses had plus the reality of Jesus' cross and resurrection. And that's the story that we get to march into the presence of God with. I mean, that's phenomenal. Right? That's the story that we are clinging to God with. And how does God respond in verse 17? This very thing that you have spoken, I will do because you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. In other words, Moses, you get it. You trust me. And you're right. I am the God who keeps my promises. And I do, in fact, love you. What's the point? The God... Moses is talking with to just kind of bring it down to, to 2023 it's the same God we have access to same God the only difference is that while Moses is alone in the tent with only Joshua with him praying with the rest of God's people looking on from a distance it's like they're trying to listen in on a conversation that's happening like over in the parking lot the new covenant teaches us that in Christ, this is the good stuff right here. This is like, this is cool. This is what we're excited about. It teaches us that in Christ, every single one of us has tabernacle access to God. Did you catch that? Every single one of us in Christ has tabernacle access to God. And while God promises to go with them into the land, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because in Christ, God makes his dwelling among us and within us. And again, that's the point of God's entire program. Not that we get the blessing of land, of good fortune, or even of physical safety, but rather that we get God. We get God. That through every danger, toil, and snare, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, walks with us because we belong to him. He is our God. We are his people. That's the one to whom we cling. The good, good father that we just sang about is the God to whom we cling. 
He does not abandon us. He does not forsake us. There's no like, oh my gosh, like what if we sin? Like what if we fumble the ball? Like what if we, like, like he didn't abandon the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Why in the world would he abandon us? Especially since our faith is, is directly tied to the one who fulfilled all of the things that Israel was called to do, Jesus, and, and he did it perfectly. And so God is not going to turn his back on his son. He's not going to turn his back on his son. And, and what we believe about our faith, what we believe that the New Testament teaches is that those of us who entrust ourselves to King Jesus, Bible teaches us that we are now brought into union with Christ. We are in Jesus, which means that when God looks upon us, even in the midst of our sin, even when we're, we're, we're struggling, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm your dad and I love you. I, I, I'm going to walk with you through this. And I've shared this before, and I want to I bring it up again, that, that when we sin, the Bible seems to indicate that the grace of God at that moment abounds, right? It abounds. Like, and, and I know I've brought this up before, and I'm probably going to bring it up again after this because I want us to so deeply understand the reality of God's grace. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even as we're walking with Jesus and we're struggling with sin at those moments when you are actually participating in whatever sin that you're trying to get rid of in your life, that the grace of God abounds at that moment. Like, it's like, it's like, it's like intensified at that moment. Now, does that mean we should sin so that grace may abound? Well, well Paul says, may it never be, right? Like, no, no, that's dumb. Don't do that. But do know as you're struggling, as you're fighting temptation, as you're really trying to, to do the thing that we've been called to do, like God's grace is just surrounding you. Why? Because he's a good, good father. That is good, good news, Redeemer Fellowship. That's good news. He's with us. He's with us. And that's all that Moses wants. It's all that Moses wants. It's not about a plot of land. It's not even about freedom from Egypt, although both of these things were significant signs of God's covenant, it's about the presence of God. And that's what he's begging God for. And that's the reality of our salvation. Forgiveness of sin and eternal life are wonderful gifts, right? They're good. It's good to know that I've been forgiven. It's good to know that I have eternal life, right? That, that I'm not going to die and, and perish and be separated for all eternity. But without the relational presence of God, without our adoption, our becoming daughters and sons of God, it misses the point. The promises of God without the presence of God will always leave us wanting. The promises of God without the presence of God will always leave us wanting. Now, this final request, this is something we might even be a little familiar with. Verses 18 through 23, and I want to read it in full. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, that covenant name. Remember, whenever it's in all capital letters, that's Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. 
for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now, a couple things stand out as we read through that that last section. The first is what Moses asks of God or even demands of God. It's actually an imperative statement. He's demanding of God, show me your glory. Now, again, how I read this, it seems that God, that Moses wants as much of God as humanly possible. He's like, I want more. I want more. It also seems to be, as one commentator observes, that Moses wants God to put some legs on this promise. Kind of a put it in writing sort of moment. And again, God responds favorably to Moses. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. God wants Moses to understand that he's not going anywhere. I will show you my glory, and I will sign this event with my covenantal name. That's what's happening right here. There's almost a little bit of like a contract being being put together here. And, And also what's happening is that God is reminding Moses of something of something that happened some 40 years ago when they met at the burning bush and God revealed himself as the great I am, as Yahweh. And then he tells them, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. To put it simply, God is basically saying, yeah, I love you guys. I love you guys. I love you, I remember, and you are the ones I have chosen to be the means by which the entire earth experiences my blessing. And this is the story that travels with the people of Israel throughout the course of the Old Testament. This is their salvation story. And it's what they base their entire existence on. Not only has God made promises, but he's kept them. Even when his people fumbled the ball as he has continued, and he has continued to keep those promises. Right? How? How has he continued to keep those promises? Uh, the answer to that story is the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. That's the answer. He keeps those promises by sending his son Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel's story to complete the work that was entrusted to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to bless all the families of the earth and to create in him one new human comprised of both Jew and Gentile. What I love about the promise is that not only do we have peace with God, but the promise ensures that we have peace horizontally, that every tribe, tongue, and nation comes to this table Provided they have entrusted themselves to Christ. Provided they have entrusted themselves to the one to whom all the promises of the Old Testament are pointing to. The new and better Moses, the true Israel, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All of us. 
Wherever we hail from, whatever socioeconomic position we find ourselves in, whatever the color of our skin, whatever history that we might possess, in Christ, we all sit at this table. And we are a part of that new man that God is building in Christ. That is good news. That is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. And again, similar to when we work through Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel, I don't think Moses has any clue what the outcome of this prayer is. I don't think he really gets the trajectory of where this thing's actually going to take all of humanity. Right now, he's looking at himself and the people that are down at the bottom of the mountain. He's like, like you got you to gotta be with us. Like, we really need you. He doesn't understand where, where this thing is going to stretch. Oh, but it, but it stretches right into this room. Every single one of us who have entrusted ourselves to King Jesus, we are the answer to that prayer that Moses was praying back in Exodus 33. Do you, do you, you catch that? That's kind of cool, right? Like, that really kind of like broadens the scope of what we're looking at. Now, the reality of this story <coughs> is that while God delivered his people from Egypt, <clears throat> spared them at the foot of Mount Sinai, led them into the land, and remained faithful to them throughout all of their wanderings and idolatry. The sinfulness of sin was too much for this broken people to overcome. They just couldn't do it. It's like, you read, you read the Old Testament, and it's just like, man, they just can't get it together. They were incapable of blessing one another, let alone all the families of the earth. And so the point of the story was always Christ. It was always God with us. It was always attacking the enemy at its root and doing so in a way that shined a light on the inferiority of things like violence, power grabs, arrogance, and death. And the irony is that the way in which Jesus crushed the head of the serpent was by allowing the enemy to use every single thing in his arsenal to take him out. And the result was the resurrection. In verses 20 through 23, God says to Moses that he can't see his face, that the closest he can get to beholding him, to experiencing his glory, is catching a glimpse of whatever is left over as he passes by, like the smoke and dust left behind after a car speeds by on a racetrack. But the promise that we have, again, for those of us who are in Christ, well, well the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of insight here. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, he says this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Did you guys, did you guys hear what I just read? Because I'm going to read it again. And we all, right, those of us who are in Christ, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That beholding, or it could be translated as reflecting, 
And I find when I'm reading things that are like ambiguous and I'm not sure if it's either or, let's just say both and, right? Beholding and reflecting. It's something that's happening now. See, see chapter 3, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians, it's in the present tense, all right? This is where grammar matters, right? This is where, like, like those of you who are like, kind of like, I don't need to know any of this verb stuff, you know? Um, no, you do. It matters, right? I, I got your back, Leah, right? It matters. This is in the present tense. That means that we are currently, as we speak, beholding, re reflecting the glory of God. We're beholding and reflecting the glory of God right now, which means right now as we behold and reflect the glory of God, as we gaze upon Jesus, we're being transformed into the image of Almighty God, into the image of Jesus. Like, it's actually happening. Like, that's, that's good news. I'm going to say it. That's good news. That's good news. So in other words... While the people of Israel were far off from God's presence, and while Moses was hiding behind a rock to just catch a glimpse, we in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, are being invited into the presence of God so that we might be transformed into the same image. I think sometimes we read the Old Testament and we, we have these thoughts like, man, if only I can see what Moses saw. If only I can see what Daniel saw, what Ezekiel, man, then I would never have any doubts. I would just be so on fire for God if I can see a body of water split in two, right? Like, clearly that's not the case because just two months after, they're like, I guess God abandoned us, right? Like, but, but, but like, what, what Paul is arguing, that what we possess is actually, like, it, it supersedes anything that those Old Testament saints would have experienced. Now, I know sometimes it might not feel that way, right? I get that. I'm not, I'm not sitting here, like, you know, I'm very honest. I'm not sitting here, like, telling you something that I have mastered. I'm not, like, it's not like I'm walking through my weeks just beholding God, right? Like, like that's not how, like, I, this is hard. This is hard. But the truth of the matter is that we have the presence of God in a way that the people of Israel in, during the Old Covenant, they just didn't have it like we had it, Okay? that tabernacle presence, that, that holy of holies temple presence of God that was, that was kept in, in one spot and, and the high priest was able to enter in and, and, and experience it once a year, it travels with us. It travels with us. And part of a life with God is, is fanning that into, into flame. Right? Is, is, is giving God that time and space so that he might, just like, you know, as if you're, if you're you know, working on a fire in your backyard and, and, and you blow on it a little bit and it gets brighter and gets brighter and gets brighter. That's what a spiritual formation is. It's, it's allowing the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, right, like to, to kind of blow on those, those, those coals so that it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happens as we offer God that time and space as we go to him in prayer. And again, all of these things, right, it's not like a magic trick. It's by faith. It's by faith. Everything is by grace through faith. And so you can pray all day till you're blue in the face. If it's not a prayer that's coming from a heart of faith, trusting that God is the one who's hearing your prayers, then it is just lip service, right? However, 
when we move towards God in faith, the Holy Spirit starts blowing on those coals and it starts to get bigger and it starts to, 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 to enliven us. And then we start to actually walk in that promise that we are the light of the world. And then people start catching a glimpse of that. And oh my goodness, we like start experiencing this thing called Christianity. And, and, and those of you who've been doing this for a while, maybe some of you 40-year walkers like Moses or, or, or beyond that, like you have those experiences. And, and I want to learn from that. And, and the young people in this room, like you, you need to learn from that. You need to find those older people to, to share those experiences with you. Because it is a wonderful thing to walk with God. And that's what Moses has a desire for. That's what he's longing for. We have been (coughs) entrusted with the relational presence of God. We have found favor in the sight of God because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And he knows our name. He knows our name. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. Redeemer, what we're seeing go down between Moses and God, it's the minor leagues compared to the access you and I have been given. It's the minor leagues. That's really the difference, and that's what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand. What we possess, it surpasses the thing that Moses had. The point this morning isn't to simply pray like Moses or desire God as much as Moses desired God. (coughs) No, no, no. If that's what we walk away with, that's dumb. That's not the point. What I'm hoping for us to walk away with, myself included, is a picture of the reality of our salvation, that in Christ we get God. And when that reality starts to take root, that love that we have for God, it starts to grow. And as it grows, the Holy Spirit moves us to our knees. (coughs) We begin to see the world through the lens of God's promises that he will be our God and we will be his people. And that's the thing that starts to shape the relationship. Worship becomes the thing that drives us in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. And and here's the thing. As we deepen and cultivate that life with God, as we continue, as I say, to offer him time and space to have his way with us, he starts to increase, which means the glory of God And the good of our neighbor starts to become more important to us. And we start looking more and more like Christ. It happens by grace through faith. And it happens sometimes without us even realizing it. And I guess the ultimate point I want us to walk away with this morning is that there are so many wonderful things about our salvation. About being a follower of Jesus. But the one that outshines it all. The thing that Moses understood, even though his access to it was partial is that we get God. We get God. That's the good news of King Jesus. That's what he has provided for us. That's what we have to cling to as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The promise of that psalm is that God walks with us. It's not that everything's going to go swimmingly. 
And we know that because we've lived more than a week. Right? But what we have as followers of Jesus is the temple, tabernacle presence of God that walks with us through the pain, through the trial. And he brings us comfort and he brings us peace. And one day he will, in fact, wipe away every tear. That is where this thing is headed. But he doesn't wipe away every tear and then leave us there. He wipes away every tear and then he spends eternity with us as his father. And that is good news. That's what Moses was hoping for that I don't think he fully understand. That's what we get to relish in and that's where we're heading as a people. That's good news. And I'm so grateful to God for it. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, <clears throat> God, we love you and we thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for this reality. But though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, <coughs> we don't have to be afraid because you walk with us. And when we're afraid, you still walk with us. And when we struggle to believe, you still walk with us. When we have our doubts, you still walk with us. When we fumble the ball in sin, you still walk with us and you draw us back to yourself. Father, I can't help but pray right now for Shannon, PJ, and Evelyn. God, I pray that, and Maggie, Lord, God, I pray that they right now would be experiencing that reality, that you walk with them. And Lord, not only in a spiritual sense, but physically because you have surrounded them with brothers and sisters to actually walk with them. That's the promise of the church. God, with all of our hearts, we love you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that one day you will come again and that we will spend eternity, not in heaven, but with you. Oh, let's change that. Let's change that story a bit, Lord God, that we will be in it. We will be with you. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.